Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. It was one of the toughest acts to follow in economics. Ed Hyman owned the high ground at C.J. Lawrence. This is a million years ago. And the guy that replaced him was the same, or frankly, some would say, even better. Ed Yardeni out of Penn brought a huge, excuse me, out of Yale, brought a huge acuity of linking economics to the markets at C.J. Lawrence and on to a storied career. He joins us this morning, as I mentioned earlier, moving the markets green by just showing up. What's the character of this bull market, Ed Yardeni? Well, it's uh, been very broad-based. Uh, every now and then, uh, people freak out because it looks like it's very narrow. Uh, and, and, and we find uh, along the way that uh, the groups that tend to lead the market at some point start to lag and the laggards catch up. I mean, we saw that uh, earlier this year where the NASDAQ had a 10% correction and the overall market held up pretty well. We saw value beat growth uh, starting September of last year. So we just have this constant rapid rotation going on in the market and the market keeps moving higher and you to new record highs. And then we saw a correction of the correction last month, Ed. We saw tech outperform, the banks underperform yes. a little bit against right. the S&P. And then into the bond market, the yield curve, two tens was flatter by 23 basis points. Ed, this is your world. Let's go there, the bond market. What does it well, tell me anymore? What do tens well, tell I, me? Yeah. I, I think that uh, it's uh, it, one of the reasons it's hard to get a significant correction in the stock market. I hope I didn't just jinx it by saying so, but uh, there's $5 trillion in M2 uh, more now than there was just before the pandemic. So there's a tremendous amount of liquidity. And with regards to the bond market, uh, you know, whenever bond yields go up, I get a call from somebody in the press asking me, uh, is that the bond vigilantes? Are they back? Uh, As you recall, I uh, coined that phrase back in 1983. And during the 90s and 2000s, they were basically nowhere to be seen because inflation kept coming down. Uh, and suddenly they come, came back uh, late last year, early this year, and now they seem to be taking a siesta again. Look, I, I think uh, it's hard to talk about a bond market. Um, markets are free. This is not a free bond market. Uh, this is one where the Federal Reserve is clearly rigging the market on a daily basis uh, with its uh, purchases. At 4.30 Eastern, Lisa will be busy looking at the central bank balance sheet over at the Federal Reserve. Where is it now, Lisa? Eight trillion pushing nine? 8.1 trillion, yeah. 8.1 trillion. Edyard Denny, how powerful is that balance sheet going to be through the whole of this cycle? Eight, nine trillion dollars. Yes, well, a trillion here, a trillion there adds up to some serious uh, money. And uh, we haven't even talked about the ECB and the BOJ, which have also been uh, uh, doing quantitative easing. So we've got a tremendous increase in the balance sheets of the central banks. uh, their their fingerprints are all over the uh, global economy and the financial markets. Um, it's, it's a huge amount of money, and they, they continue to accumulate uh, these uh, assets. I think, uh, though, clearly we're, we're heading towards an environment where they have to consider tapering. Let's cut back, folks. I mean, for example, housing. We've got a booming housing market, and so what are they still buying? Mortgage-backed securities. Where does that make any sense? 
And whenever they talk about their tapering, they say, well, it's, it creates financial market stability. What that means is that they've been successful in pegging the bond yield and keeping it from going higher. If it wasn't for them, I think the bond yield will be at 2% today. I think it's going to go there by the end of the year because I think tapering is coming. All right. So tapering, you think, even the beginning of paring back the $120 billion of purchases Correct. of securities, you think could send the 10-year yield to 2%. Yes, I do. Um, I, I think once the market uh, starts to, to, to get uh, a schedule from the Fed, I think the Fed will discuss it at the FOMC meeting in, in July, and I think in September they'll implement it. They have to. The economy is booming. Um, inflationary pressures have been uh, pretty intense. Some of them are base effect. Some of them are uh, maybe a little bit more permanent. So I, I think tapering is coming. And then the market's going to look at its uh, schedule and say, well, you know, after tapering, uh, once they're done tapering, which could be the first half of next year, they'll start raising interest rates. And that that plot keeps uh, drifting towards uh, increasing uh, interest rates in 2022 uh, instead of 2023. So it's, it's coming. And I think the bond market's uh, going to be somewhat freer uh, to uh, express an opinion on the fact that the economy is strong and yeah. inflation is over 2%. And I'm sympathetic to this idea that Treasury yields will rise when the Federal Reserve decides to buy fewer of those securities each month. Right. However, when they took a more hawkish tone, at least by re as reflected in the dots earlier this month, the actual, the long end went yes. down. You actually saw yields drop, price higher. How do you understand that and extrapolate that forward as to the market response right. to potential tapering? Well, again, I think it's really hard to uh, psychoanalyze the bond market uh, when the, uh, you know, the, the psychiatrist is, uh, I don't know if I like this analogy that much, but you know what I'm saying. I mean, the, the, the Fed just keeps buying tre treasury and mortgage-backed securities. And I think that's why we've been holding here around 1.5% uh, on the bond market. Uh, but once they, uh, I mean, they've already started to uh, hint that they're going to taper. Uh, for example, they're not backing up the corporate bond market. They don't have to, so they're, they're backing off on that. Uh, they increased uh, rates in the very short end of the marketplace because can't really have negative interest rates and, and not put the money market funds out of business. Uh, so I think they're already moving in the, in that, in the direction, and I think the, the bond markets will reflect that. Look, the yield curve is uh, behaving actually pretty normally if you look at over the past year or so, it's been ascending, steepening, and I think it continues to steepen. Uh, usually, uh, it steepens to the point of 300 basis points. We're only halfway there. Uh, do you think that the stocks can continue rallying even as the Fed eases the pedal from uh, from its bond monthly bond purchases? Yeah, I, I do, because uh, as, as the Fed becomes less stimulative, there's still a tremendous amount of stimulus that's just kind of sitting there in, uh, in liquid assets. Um, Again, M2 is up over, over $5 trillion since uh, the, the pandemic started. And that liquidity can, I, I, if we look at the M2 divided by GDP, you know, that, that's the flip side of velocity, which is not my favorite variable. But if you look at M2 relative to GDP, we've got something like a year's worth of M2 relative to GDP. So there's a tremendous amount of liquidity that can go either to the economy or the financial markets or real estate or all of the above. All of the above is my choice. Ed, did you ever think we'd be in a world where unemployment would have a five-handle and a 10-year would be sub-150? Did you ever envision that kind of world? Well, well, it's, it's, it's hard to imagine a world like that without the Fed uh, being so interventionist in the bond market. Uh, you know, there's uh, various relationships like the copper-gold ratio and the bond yield, which have actually worked pretty well in the past. And that relationship says that <clears throat> the, the bond yield should be closer to 2.5% than to one and a half percent, but the relationship hasn't worked because of the, 
all that inter intervention. Um, but um, I, I think uh, these things don't stay out of kilter uh, for very long. I think the divergences uh, will converge, and I do see bond yields going higher. Ed, that's the call. It's good to hear from you. Ed, you aren't any there. You. you aren't any research president. Hudson Hunter is going, what are they talking about? She's with KPMG, their chief economist, uh, and joins us this morning. I'm a Constance, Yankees fan. Well, you're a Yankees fan. Well, you know, <laughs> please. What Doug Cass send you in? Constance, I mean, for, we can't talk Yankees, Red Sox right now, but we can't talk claims to jobs. Does this claims number adjust your jobs outlook tomorrow? Not really. And I and I just want to say with regard to the, the state map that you put up, um, what we have in our latest chart book is that same map overlaid with the vaccination rates, because we think that this is a big thing that is keeping people on those continuing claims. So when thinking about the impact of the um, cutoff of pandemic unemployment insurance supplemental uh, dollars in certain states, we need to look at the continuing claims and we need to look at what's going on with vaccination rates in those states, because we still have over 40% of working age adults have not received even one vaccine. And we think this combined with childcare are the things that are really holding back people going back to the labor force. Is this why people keep bringing up September Constance, the date in the diary on the calendar for this year that some of these issues might get resolved or begin to resolve them? Yeah, sure. If we go back to 100% in-person school and we are working on vaccinating young people so um, that those odds keep going up if we keep getting those vaccines distributed. Um, but I should point out for a few young children that aren't yet in school, um, we have eight and a half fewer daycare workers than prior to the pandemic. So um, daycare, if you have young children, is very, very difficult to find as well. So it solves the problem for, for everybody who has school-aged children. It doesn't solve the problem for very young children. Constance, let's extrapolate out and build on this, particularly with respect to this argument over whether to end the enhanced unemployment benefits earlier rather than later. Are there any detrimental effects from ending them now based on what you're saying? Well, if you believe that they, the supplemental unemployment insurance has limited economic scarring, and data certainly suggests that it has, right? So we see personal bankruptcies are down, delinquency rates are down, um, we see savings up. So we know that household balance sheets have benefited from the supplemental unemployment insurance and that that should limit economic scarring. So as we enter the recovery phase, um, people will be in a better position to consume. And that, of course, will help the recovery. Uh, I do think we're far enough along that, that a lot of that scarring should begin to dissipate as the economy continues to reopen, as people continue to get vaccinated, as we get children back in school in the fall, all these sorts of things. There's good momentum. But what we really don't know is how much of this is related to vaccination rates. And we can look internationally. Interestingly, you see the same phenomenon globally, especially in developed economies that you see here. Leisure and hospitality workers really reconsidering, is this a, is this a field I want to be in? Are there other options that I could be doing? If we go back in history and look at previous pandemics back 500 years, um, we observe something really interesting when we compare wars and pandemics, right? Because both have loss of life. Mm -hmm. um, but in pandemics, there is an increase in real wages after the pandemic. And it seems like there is some hesitancy to go back to in-person work after pandemics. 
And you see it in the jolt data as well. You see all this churn. People reevaluate. What is it that I want to be doing with my life? Okay, Constance, we got wages up. I mean, uh, Morgan Stanley really emphasizes that. They call it wage gain potential. I get it. I also have inflation up. Right now, I've got a massive negative real wage growth. Do I get to a positive inflation-adjusted wage growth? I think by this time next year, you absolutely do. Um, but we're not we're we're looking for a 2.3 percent inflation this time next year. So we're expecting to, to dissipate, but we're still expecting pretty healthy inflation. With that said, we're also looking for a growth rate that's close to five percent. So so when you combine these two things together, I think that we will see real wage growth. And the question is, which segment of the labor market? So right now we're seeing the wage growth in the segment of the labor market that has to work from their job site. And that unemployment rate is about six and a half percent. But the the increased demand for wages, the reservation wage, the wage at which people are willing to work, has gone up for people without a bachelor's degree. So that's a lot of the people that have to work at their job site. For those people who can work from home, the unemployment rate is 2.7%. And if you imagine that this is going to be a recovery that's five years, I would see if you look a year or two out, it's the it's that 40% of people with bachelor's degrees that can work from home that are that are already in a tight labor market where you're going to see the bulk of the wage inflation throughout this cycle. That's a really interesting final interesting. point. Constance, thank you. Constance Hunter there. Should we KPMG, do the show from home? Chief Economist. Is I think it? we did that, Tom, for about four months. <laughs> it worked out. How did that work out for it you? It did not work out well, folks. That did and not thanks. work out for me. Let, no. Let's recapitulate that at mid-year here. Thanks to our technical team who jumped through massive hoops. Massive hoops to get that done and to get us back. You know, that was a tough time. Go on, Lisa. Can I just say I want to offer thanks to my two boys who sat on the couch oh, eating God. breakfast while I was broadcasting, just to give you a sense you. of the childcare and the working from home yeah. John, situation. Can I, can I also say I'd like to thank Vet Bell and Kennel. <laughs> of course, yeah. I mean, what are these Oscar speeches? Yeah. Right now, we always read the documents from Joseph Lavornia with the taxes, CIB, their chief economist of America's. Joe, what have you tweaked recently? What's the, the thing you're, you're tweaking here at a mid-year review? Uh, not, I, interestingly enough, Jonathan was talking about two cents, and you said, why did the curve is flatten so much? Uh, I want to just talk about that for a minute, Tom. And Please. The res- that's been due to the market's expectation of the terminal Fed funds rate coming down significantly. And uh, on your Bloomberg terminal, you can pull up your five-year, five-year OIS, and that's rallied from about 240 basis points, which was the peak in the funds rate in the last cycle, to around 170 basis points. So we've basically had a 70 basis point rally since April, and where the market thinks the terminal rate will end this cycle, and that accounts for the substantial flattening. And yes, you don't have much inflation pressure in the system. I'm, I'm thrilled you went there, Joe. Let's focus on this now. And it's Joseph Lavorne of Natexas, Jan Hatzius of Goldman Sachs and others saying we're going back under 3%. Do you agree with that, Joe, that the terminal value of our economic growth is under 3%, whether it's Faroli's under 2% or Hatzius is under 3%? It doesn't, it doesn't have to be that way, Tom, but that seems to be the consensus of forecasters. And even in the Biden budget, they're forecasting GDP of 1.9%. So it does seem like the consensus of forecasters is shifting down to a to a sub-2% world. I would love to see 3%. It is possible we can get 3%. I'm not, I'm not a pessimist on long-term productivity growth, and it's very possible that 
uh, this crisis, uh, this pandemic, was an accelerant to productivity growth. And we're going to find these great new ways of doing business actually long term could lead to higher productivity. What I can tell you in the short term is the economy is booming this year. It's got a tremendous amount of stimulus. That's, that's the reason why the equity market's up five straight quarters. Uh, the economy's doing well. Next year, it will slow. But where it goes beyond next year, Tom, will be a function, I believe, of regulatory policy and fiscal policy. And if we get the right program in place, I don't see why growth can't be much faster than 2%. Joe, I want to tease out a couple of scenarios, given what you have just said, and maybe take out the last bit. What's the chance? Can you envision a scenario where the Federal Reserve gets stuck down here? Oh, absolutely. I've, I've done a few interviews with some other sources saying I believe the Fed is, is stuck in a box. Uh, and I say that because, simply put, if the Fed can't taper the economy when GDP is running at least 7%, maybe 8% this year, how is it going to taper next year uh, when the economy is downshifted massively and inflation's moving lower? They have a real-time inconsistency problem. I don't see them being able to do it. And in the last cycle, it took them seven years from the last rate cut to the first rate hike. And I believe it was four years from the time they began to taper. So it, it, they're not going to move anywhere near as quickly as they think they are. Bill Dudley out with a piece on the Bloomberg Terminal this morning on Bloomberg.com, on Bloomberg Opinion, saying the Fed will taper, don't freak out. Joe, do you think it is that easy, that simple, that straightforward? No, I don't. I, I don't. The market, I, I would argue, if you look at the, the forward market, as I highlighted at the outset, the market does not believe the Fed is going to taper. The problem is the Fed last year bought 45% of all treasuries. They were the single, single biggest buyer. And, um, and, and their balance sheet is approaching 40% of GDP. Their ability to navigate the taper is significantly more difficult today than it was eight years ago. So I think to say that they could do it and it's going to be seamless, I think, is very, very naive. Joe, what's the tailwind that the economy is getting at this point from the Fed policy remaining this easy? And I ask this, as you talk about the Fed being stuck in a box and possibly not being able to raise rates. I mean, the policy has basically been, the I'd argue the economy is pretty healthy in February 2020. We reopened, we got a V-shaped recovery. It was overlaid with tremendous fiscal stimulus. We've had now over $5 trillion of just COVID-related spending. The Fed's been real easy, and you've got this demand boom. Supply has been slow to catch up. That's why you've had the inflation. But the economy is, you know, resurgence. There's just so much pent-up demand. It will moderate, but essentially it's the economy that I would argue if you leave it, if you leave it alone, it'll be fine. But certainly both dials, fiscal and monetary, are full tilt, and that's why the economy is improving. And it was generally healthy. So uh, we're in good shape. I just don't see the Fed being able to, uh, to, 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 to do anything on the, uh, on the rate hike side. And if you got fiscal stimulus, it may actually ironically cause them to their ability to do anything that may fall even more. In other words, who's going to be buying all this debt if we get more stimulus from here, which is what the administration is trying to do. How important is the jobs number that we're going to be getting tomorrow in order to determine Fed policy? It's important in the sense that if it comes in softer than expected, and we're going to get a soft report sometime soon, it's going to squeeze the shorts in the market. You're going to see twos, tens flatten even more. But in terms of the bigger picture, I don't, I don't think the employment numbers matter that much. If it's weak, people will say it's because of labor shortages. Um, I don't think it really matters. I think the inflation numbers are what's driving Main Street and what's driving most investment decisions. I don't think it's a problem, but I don't think employment's a big deal at the moment. Joe, the equity markets, it's Chapter 23 of Mankiw, Chapter 23 of Krugman, Olivier Blanchard, whatever. How do you observe the equity markets in your economics, this run of a great bull market? How does it translate into Livornia economics? I, I, I try not 
You mentioned three people. One of them I definitely don't try to read. I won't say who that is. But, um, oh, but Tom, it seems shade it, there, John Lavorne, you're a little chippy this morning. A little chippy this morning. <laughs> think what he would but, say. Uh, think what he would say about Catherine Mann. Carry no, on, John. Very wonderful woman. Uh, she actually worked with my old uh, colleague, at Peter Hooper. But um, anyway, leaving that aside, the um, on the equity side, what we've seen really is a tremendous increase in profitability. And uh, that reflects the fact that, well, the U.S. has recovered, Tom, so has the global economy. I mean, even with the lockdowns, the sporadic lockdowns in Europe and the COVID cases in South America, we've seen the PMIs in Brazil, in the U.K., Germany, Italy, France, Japan. They've all recovered. So it's been a huge global rebound. The S&P has significant exposure to the global economy with the U.S. booming. It's really been about earnings. And going forward, you have to assume that this performance is pulling from future activity. But Livorni Economics says, look, if there's no recession in sight, and I don't see one, even if the economy slows, rates stay low, inflation is going to moderate, and we're still going to get positive long-term equity returns, and we still have not seen the peak in stock markets. So I'm still, I'm still, I'm still an optimist. Larry Pedlow taught me well. Joe, final question from me, and I won't go there either. In terms of this cycle, as it starts to really pick up, are you surprised that that hasn't engineered a weaker dollar? Uh, a little bit. To me, there's been a lot of people have been very short rates. They've had curve steepeners on, and they've been very short dollars. So I think that's part of the reason why the dollar hasn't weakened much. And then peripherally, because the U.S. has sort of come out of the uh, of this pandemic quicker than many of our trading partners and in other industrialized countries, it's kept the dollar better bid than it otherwise would be, especially related to these massive twin deficits, the combination of the budget deficit and the trade deficit. So it doesn't totally surprise me. Joe, it's good to see you. I miss the country. Thanks, guys and gals. Thank you. It's great to get a flavor of it from Joe Livornia, Natixis, economist of the Americas. Right now, not downtown, but in Midtown was a reaffirmation of all that Dana Telsey believes in. Dana Telsey is definitive in fashion and the study, the security analysis of what we buy and wear every day. And Dana, it was Mark Jacobs at the public library. And as Vanessa said in the New York Times, there were hugs and kisses. What is the symbolism of New York's finest, Mr. Jacobs, doing a show here in the heat of New York City summer? I think it's about the reopening and the recovery that's just beginning. The fact that vaccinations have been given, that there's more to go, that there's a safe way for people to socialize and gather. It's been over a year, and I think everyone's missed it. And that's why what you and you, Tom, and I have talked is it's a time period of supercharged change. What's so important here, Dana, is Anne-Marie Horton down in Washington for Bloomberg News was killing it this morning, wearing Marc Jacobs in pink. Lady Gaga says pink is this summer's color. Are we going to refill our closets with pink? I think we are refilling our closets. We're refilling with fashion. Basically, everyone wants optimism. What does optimism show? That you can go out another and... People can be together again. So I think these trends, I think they're going to continue. I think consumers have money in their pocket and we're going to have a super holiday season if companies can only get the inventory. And keep in mind, we're seeing so much change out there. We're seeing companies overall look for ways to better serve the consumer in all different areas. Tom, where do you find out style trends? 
Where do clothing. I find them out? Yeah. I read Dana Telsey and Joe Feldman at Telsey Advisory I don't, Group. I don't see any pink uh, discussion in her note, Dana. Come on, Lady Gaga's <laughs> all over this. Leave the lovely Gaga alone. She all says right. it's pink, it's pink. All right, moving forward, Dana, aside from the pink call, you talked about how consumers are dealing with uh, their orders in a different way, the online world and how that has affected brick and mortar. What are you expecting, particularly in the second half of the year, in terms of the distribution between e-commerce and brick and mortar as more people get vaccinated? So what we're seeing is even when stores are reopening, online sales remain solid. And I think if anything, the supercharged change that's gone on, I think the COVID crisis created innovation leading to the acceleration of so many things that would have taken three to five years to achieve. So what you're seeing out there is an accelerator of new business model capabilities. I think stores recover. They may not get the same traffic because you have purposeful purchasing. But what you are getting is you're getting more customization. Consumers are going in there and converting. And you know what we're seeing? We're seeing every category being disrupted by change. And there's like a sea change every 10 years. So what used to be the category killers of the 1980s and 1990s are now the disruptors. You think about it, and so many of these companies are still private, whether it be Warby Parker and specialty retail, Forward and Healthcare, Birdies or Rothy's and Footwear, Glossier in Cosmetics, Holly in the Auto Performance Aftermarket. Yeah. Private companies have a lot of runway in the DTC market. Dana, how much pricing power do these consumer-facing uh, companies have, given the fact that we're seeing input costs rise to the degree they are? I think inventory levels are lean. Supply chains are disrupted. We're seeing better merchandise margins than we've seen in years. And I think that we're going to continue to see solid margins going forward. Are we going to get back to promotions? I think we will. But the extension of mm -hmm. what these delays are, I'm hearing you won't get normalized inventories until nearly the end of the year and into 2022. Dana, where's value in luxury right now? If somebody wants to buy the usual names, LVMH, Gucci, Carrig, the rest of them is, well, is there any value there? Or are they just over, are they just priced to perfection? I, I think there's still more value there. I don't think you can look at the history before 2019. I think we have to go forward. And I think the engagement of consumers with, with luxury, you have the Chinese that are staying in China. Mm -hmm. When tourism come back, comes back, it's going to accelerate the rest of the world. And you have locals buying right. here in the U.S. Keep in mind, Tom, look how Chanel raised their prices. We're hearing yeah, price that. increases in the space. Yeah, Dana, thanks for bringing up a sore point. Joe Feldman crushes it on Amazon as well. Link your world into Joe Feldman's world. Is Amazon out front on fashion or is Bezos going down in flames? I think Amazon is out there in so many categories. I think they can be for essentials. And you're seeing other types of companies be very singular in nature in terms of what they're able to do with categories. That's why I say category killers, DTC companies like the ones I mentioned, are going to be able to resonate against Amazon. You're seeing vintage in all different categories mm -hmm. be very relevant. Dana, thanks so much. Go away. Ch Chanel is overpriced. That's what I learned. Dana Telsey, thank you so much. Telsey, advisory group as well. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations 
and subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.